Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we will be taking a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's Beef Watch Podcast is a producer's perspective, and I have the privilege of being joined by Lisa McMillan, who ranches with her husband in Southern Blaine County, north of Broken Bow, together with her family. Thanks for joining me today, Lisa. Thank you, Aaron. Well, Lisa, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me today. And the focus of our conversation today is going to be about how you utilize fire there as part of a range management tool to control cedar trees. But before we focus on that, share with us a little more about yourself, your background, and a little more about your operation there. Well, myself, I went to uh, high school in Broken Bow and, and then went on to UNL in, in range management. That's where I met my husband, Tom, and he was in animal science while we were down there at UNL together. He came back to uh, run his family's ranch that has been in his family since 1880. Um, I also came from a ranching background, except for my family didn't get here till 1888. So uh, both of us come from a long uh, ranching background and uh, lifestyle, and so we know the importance of taking care of the land and and the natural resources. Sure, a little about your operation there in terms of the kind of grassland you manage. Is it primarily sand hills? Is there some kind of canyon loam, heavier soils? What's the soil type and topography of the ground that you're managing there? Yes, you're correct, Aaron. We are in the uh, we're kind of on the edge of the sand hills. So we do have some some very sandy stuff. Uh, we're right along the Middle Loop River, um, and we also have some hard ground, um, and that's usually where we see our cedar tree encroachment is is on that ground. We do also have some irrigated grass pivots, uh, and we run a cow calf operation um, here in Blaine County, Southern Blaine County. So as you look historically at how pastures have been managed, what's some of the changes that have happened over time in terms of range management? Well, of course, uh, you know, when we first started out, and especially on my husband's family ranch, which is where we're at here today, you had one water source in the middle of a section, and um, and it was usually a windmill and a bottomless tank, and, and you would, you know, sort off a few pair and, and one bull and, and put them in that pasture and leave them in there until it was time to, to gather them up in the in the fall. But of course things have changed. My husband attended the range practicum several years ago and um, and of course me with my range around at UNL and also working with NRCS, we've changed our operation quite extensively. And of course after my husband's father passed away, my father-in-law, then he had the reins of running the operation here at his family ranch and and so then he made a few changes too and so we've done a number of of projects we we did have a great plains contract through NRCS and um, did a, a number of cross fencing and some water development several miles of pipeline uh, put in and new electric wells submersible wells that that we use today compared to you know the old windmills we still still have a number of windmills in our operation but almost all the property has has running water in it either through the middle loop river or through a pipeline system so we're more now into what we call a rest rotation, or I guess UNL come up with that name, uh, this wet rest rotation, where we have at least one pasture in, in that mini rotation 
um, that is rested for a full full season. And uh, that's what makes it easy for us then to get into the prescribed burning aspect is we've got that pasture, the one that's rested, will be able to go into uh, that burn the next spring. So when you say you rest that pasture, basically from the end of the growing season, say in 2019, that, is that pasture utilized at all till 2021 or how does that work? Yes, we would just not use it at all. So for example, the three pastures that we're going to be burning this spring in 2020 uh, were all rested for a full season. So as soon as we got done grazing those in 2018, they didn't have a, a hoof on them then in 2019 so that we were going to be able to burn them here in 2020. So talk a little about the history of utilizing fire as part of a tool to control cedar trees on your operation and, and how's that changed over time and what are some of the impacts that you've seen as a result of using this tool? Well, we've been burning here on, on this ranch since 1996. And so um, I cannot say that we've burned every year. We would have liked to have burned every year, but uh, we've had a few droughts in since that time frame. And so I was, was not able to do that. And then, of course, some springs are not uh, cohesive to burning either. We've got this one right here we're going through now. It's a pretty wet spring. Um, last year was a really wet spring, but and, and there's only so many good days that a, that a guy can get a burn in. So we've been trying to utilize that every year. We have had some pastures here in the last few years that we've had to go back in and burn for a second time um, because the, the small trees have been coming back in. So last year we was in two pastures that we had burned 12 years ago. Two of the pastures that we're going into to burn this spring um, were, were burnt almost 20 years ago and are needing a maintenance burn, as we're calling these. The first time we go into a pasture that has never been burnt before, it, we usually call it kind of a reclamation burn because it's a, we're trying to reclaim the, the ground from the, the trees that are that are taken over um, and we usually try to cut everything that's four foot and taller um, anything smaller than that the, the burn shouldn't have any problems getting so as you mentioned burning and doing some cutting of trees prior to a burn what's the equipment that you use to accomplish that and how does that work especially in some of that rougher canyon country that might be a little bit hard to navigate to get to some of those areas where there's trees yeah, the, the equipment that we have are tree shears, um, and of course it's a hydraulic, hydraulically run one on a skid steer unit. But the other equipment we use are called chainsaws, <laughs> and so that that takes a little bit more manpower, of course. And and uh, and we don't have some of those really steep canyons as um, as you would see in some of the Lusk canyons whether, you know, this part of or part of Custer County or, or down, down on into Lincoln County and Dawson County. But um, ours, ours are not that steep, but we, deal, we still do have some steep canyons. And, and those, are, those are mainly the two pieces of equipment we use. We also do have um, a shredder um, for, for some of the smaller trees that, that we use if we're not quite ready to burn that pasture but want to get ahead and, and keep those um, littler trees a little bit smaller until a few years down the road when we're ready to burn that pasture. So that's mainly the, uh, the types of equipment that, that we use to get prepared for burning that pasture. When you go out and you 
shear or cut off some of these bigger trees? Do you leave them way where they're cut? Do you pile them? Uh, how does that look from a management perspective? You know, we do a little bit of both of those, Aaron. We um, we do you use a, a technique called cutting and tucking, but unfortunately, we don't do that in a lot of our rolling hills um, because once we cut that tree, you know, there's nothing to cut tuck it underneath of, and so we usually just pile those um, and and small piles. Um, sometimes the trees are just scattered about, and so instead of piling those, we just leave leave them lay where they're at. If they're they're scattered nicely, that they'll they'll burn and become part of the soil. As you think about prepping a pasture to burn, when does this cutting of trees occur? Is that uh, in the spring, right before the burn, or does it happen in the winter before? What does that look like? You know, Aaron, that's the beauty of knowing which pastures you're going to burn a year in advance is because then you can do those preparation works. Preparing that a year in advance is, is one of those areas that um, that's kind of nice to do. You know, you can get the, the trees cut in those pastures that you know you're going to burn. You can get the mowing done. We do a lot of fire breaks. So we mow the fire breaks around the outside edge of the unit that we're going to burn. Um, if we do that in the fall, that leaves the, the grass residual that we mowed off. You leave it a, give it a chance to blow away or, um, uh, you know, be eaten by wildlife. And um, um, so that in the spring when you're ready to go, all your prep work is, is done. If you need to make some roads, maybe doze a few trails, that all can be done um, too that year that it's setting idle. Um, so that's, that's kind of nice to, to know ahead of time. But it, but it usually takes about a year to get your prep work done to, on the properties that you're going to burn the next spring. You mentioned that you've been doing this since 1996. What's changed in terms of your management or techniques over time or has much changed? Are you using pretty much the same approach as you did when you started in 1996? You know, we have done a little bit different. Some of our pastures have a little bit of brome grass in them. Um, some of them have, um, that would be the harder ground um, that we have a little bit of brome in. We've got some of our native rangeland that if we burn them early, of course, we have a big flush and needle and thread and porcupine grass in and so if we don't get in there and graze that right after we burn then we we see a, you know a big influx of that and you as the beef specialist know that uh, sometimes that's not the easiest to graze after the seed has has um, come out on those and so instead of we used to wait 60 to 90 days after we got done burning or after we completed the burn in, in order to go back in those pastures. And now we're seeing that, you know, if we have an influx of those cool season species that we might might want to set them back a little, then we'll go ahead and turn those cattle in there maybe maybe 30 days after after the burn um, and, and let them utilize that cool season grass and maybe keep it from seeding out so quickly or seeding out at all that year. Have you seen a shift in species composition of the types of grasses you have present in some of these pastures where you've utilized the burn, especially maybe some that had some brome or more prevalence of needle and thread? You know, yes. Um, um, unfortunately, the the brome and the needle and thread, it just depends on how early we get burn in. And, and like I said earlier in our conversation is that, you know, there's not that many good days to burn if you're looking at the springtime. 
So what you get is the earlier you burn, the more cool season grasses you're going to get. The later you burn, the more you're going to set those back. But it seems like everybody's busy with, with branding or trying to get in the cropland fields. And so we just take whichever day we have the prescription for, and, and that's the day we run with. And so, you know, it seems like to me one a problem at a time. And the problem that we're looking at now is eastern red cedar reduction. So if we can get that done with the first burn, maybe when we come back through with the next one, we'll be more focused on, um, on cool season reduction. So earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that there's some pastures that you burned 10, 12 years ago that you're now coming back a second time. And you also said there's some that have been up to 20 years. What do you typically see the effectiveness of the fire in terms of setting back cedar trees now that you've been at it for almost 25 years? You know that it's it's very effective. It's very cost efficient. It's really going to be the way of the future. I know it's a scary thing for some people because fire has always been seemed uh, like a bad omen to a lot of the pioneers and there are a lot of family ranches that have been around for a long time when when wildfires were a problem just learning as much as you can about fire and and how it how it moves and and what it needs and and how to control it um, is is one thing that I would encourage farmers and ranchers to do that that are interested in this because it's it's way cheaper to run a, a prescribed fire through your pasture than it's going to be to to hire somebody to come in or for you to to go in and cut the you know the big trees out of it um, or even go back through and and shred the little trees because every time you use any type of equipment like that even even the hand um, chainsaws is that you've got to treat every single tree and with the prescribed burning you can treat all the trees at in the same day and be done with it at, at one time but it's not something that you can do by yourself it's something that you have to do as a community what we use is the same people that we brand with. We get those, those same people are the ones that come and help us burn. So getting along with your neighbors and inviting your, your friends and your relatives from town or, or wherever you can get help is, is the best way to, to go about getting a prescribed burn done. Talk a little more about that, just the education that goes into learning how to set one of these up, putting a burn plan together. What are some educational opportunities for people who maybe want to go get educated on that and figure out, might they find a way to use this as a tool on their own operation? I'm a member, uh, a charter member, as a matter of fact, of the Prescribed Burn Task Force, and we were started in, in 1995, and we have been putting on seminars in, in the central part of Nebraska and, and mainly four different counties uh, is where we kind of got started, and that was Buffalo and Dawson and Custer and Lincoln County. And that's where we saw the majority of the cedar tree issues, and we thought that was where we wanted to target our education efforts. So we've been putting on at least one school and sometimes as many as four schools um, every year since 1996. Now this year, um, the Prescribed Burn Task Force, we are going to branch out a little bit. Some of the research at UNL and at Oklahoma State has talked about doing a growing season burn and that we think that maybe with um, these cedar trees getting into the sand hills, that might be 
an avenue that those ranchers may want to do rather than a spring burn. Um, it's a little bit less flashy because, of course, it's during the growing season, so the green grass is growing, and so that slows down the burn quite a bit. It's a lot smokier because a lot of that uh, smoke is water vapor that's evaporating off of that those green grasses. But I think maybe our producers in the sandhills will be more more apt to utilizing this tool of prescribed burning if it's not quite as scary for them. And so uh, I know that the pheasants forever, I don't know how long they've been doing theirs, maybe 10 years that they've been putting on schools. There's just a number of, of places around that are, uh, I think the Sandhills Task Force is co- concentrating on putting on some schools as well. So most of those are taught in the in the winter time, you know, January, February type of time frame so that you're, you get your education and then you're able to go and do the prescribed burn on the ground. Now we used to be able to help producers do demonstration burns, but unfortunately we had some difficulty through NRCS and getting that done. So mainly it's just getting getting on a burn and uh, learning from the sidelines what, what needs to be done and what all the different tasks and jobs are for doing a prescribed burn. As you think about the pastures where you've done this, as you look back, what's been the change in terms of what you've seen in terms of production? How has it impacted the grass species that are there? What are some observations you would say you would take away from what you've observed take place after a a prescribed burn? Well, immediately after um, the burn, of course, everything is black, and the majority of the people know that that black ash is full of nutrients. And so what we're doing is recycling the nutrients that was standing in dead grass is now turned into ash and with the rain being taken back down into the root zone so that it's able to be used again. So what we see on those pastures, and and you can just drive by and know that somebody had done a prescribed burn on it because the grass is, is way taller and it's usually a lot thicker grass too from what we what we see now of course that's all going to depend on what kind of moisture you get so it might not be the case every year because we we did some burning in in um, 2012 not knowing that 2012 was going to be a drought year and so we didn't see a lot of uh, pastures with some nice thick tall grass in it in 2013 um, because it just didn't didn't grow back so on an average year, that's what I would say is that, um, you know, you, you're recycling those nutrients, you get those minerals and, and nutrients back into the soil and let that plant have a chance to use it. It's just, like I said, a, a shot of fertilizer for it. And it's Mother Nature's way of, of cleaning up pastures with weeds. Now, I know it doesn't kill some of the noxious weeds that people are worried about, but it does open up the canopy so that you, if you're going to do a chemical treatment of Canada thistle or leafy spurge, that you're able to see those shoots that are coming up and, and be able to use your, your herbicides on those. I want you to go back just a little bit to something you shared. You burned in 12, and I could see for a lot of folks thinking, you know, I, that's part of the reason I'm hesitant to do this. I've, I've got this grass and now I'm thinking about possibly a drought could be coming. That grass is kind of like feed in the bank, money in the bank, so to speak. Share a little bit about what you saw happen with that pasture in terms of recovery after the drought. What took place with that? You know, everybody was strapped with finding extra pasture uh, as 2012 went along. 
what we ended up doing was selling our fall herd during that time frame, and then uh, since have have been increasing our herd back again. That does take a few years, as you know. So you know we it, that grass, that native grass, is very resilient. Um, you wouldn't even know anything has happened. Um, it doesn't look like a freshly burnt area um, anymore because, of course, all those nutrients have been used up, done long since used up. But, um, but you know, we just did, we just kept with our grazing plan and doing our, our rotation, um, our rest rotation. And like I said, finally, it started raining again. We did have a few less numbers, but, uh, you know, that's part of Part of our drought management plan was to decrease our stocking rate and, and getting rid of cow-calf pairs was, was the way that we were able to do it. The other way, you know, we did is we weaned early and, and um, put, um, put those calves in the feedlot. So, uh, you know, producers have to do what they have to do to, to make it go. And, of course, nobody knew that the, that was coming on. Those um, droughts, they seem to sneak up on you. But if you've got a drought plan, um, you need to you need to stick with it. Yes, the, the thing I wanted to that you said that I wanted to kind of come back to though is even though those that pasture was burned prior to that drought or actually going into the spring of that drought, those native plants still recovered very well. And as you said, no real detrimental long term impact as far as you can see, or even though the burn occurred in the drought year, is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, Lisa, what else would you share with producers that you think would be valuable for them to know about utilizing fire as a tool on, on native range and pasture and what might be some resources you'd point folks to to take a look at and consider? Well, being an NRCS employee, I would, um, I would highly encourage you to go into your local office the conservationists there, um, if they're not versed on, on prescribed burning, they'll know somebody that, that you can get a hold of or that they can get a hold of for you and um, talk you through um, some of the different things that, that you would need to do. NRCS also has, um, we call it cost share, but it's really more of an incentive payment through EQIP for people that are wanting to do that. And CSP also has some some money available uh, if a if a producer would like to put prescribed burning into their toolbox full of resource projects. Anything else you'd like to highlight, Lisa, as we point towards wrapping this up? I don't believe so. I do, like I said, I want to reiterate that, you know, the problem with these eastern red cedar encroachment is ongoing. Um, it doesn't matter if you look in the road ditch that is managed more by the Department of Roads. Um, it doesn't matter if you drive down the interstate headed into Lincoln. It doesn't matter where you go in the state of Nebraska, you're going to see the cedar tree encroachment. And the quicker than you, that you can get to these cedar trees and get those taken care of, the, the easier and the most cost-effective it's going to be. When those cedars get tall, that's when, um, that's when it's going to cost more because you're going to have to use some sort of mechanical treatment in order to, to get rid of those. But all the little ones um, shouldn't be any problem to, to use a, 
a prescribed burn on. And, and a lot of times we know that our fence lines are not the easiest to navigate. So getting along with your neighbor and maybe going using a ridge top that goes from your pasture over into his or um, a canyon bottom that goes up um, through her side of the, the ranch, you know, getting along with them and, and using those types of areas to to get your burn um, line established on um, will help you both with your eater, your cedar tree encroachment problem. Well, thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and your efforts and what you shared. Thank you, Aaron, for inviting us along. Well, for more information on Eastern Red Cedar Tree Control, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.ed website. At the website, you will be able to find links to resources on cedar tree control.